0: Jim never has the need for a show like ours been greater than it is now. Yeah, well, how could I
2: disagree with that? I mean, you know, we're a show about what works. We're looking for solutions. And certainly after the week we've had, it seems like we need them now more than ever.
0: So thank you first to our supporters on Patreon, which is our fundraising site. A shout out to two of our latest supporters, Lucy Westcott and Judy Stoven.
2: And thank you for helping us spread our message. We really urge all of you to, to go to Patreon and leave a comment, make a small donation. This is something that will help us build our audience and bring more exposure to good ideas that really can make the world a better place.
0: Yeah. Go to patreon.com. How do we fix it? This week, after El Paso and Dayton, mass shootings and the need for reform. We hear from several guests. I'm somewhat more emotional than you are at times, Jim. And I have to say, I started the week after the shootings in El Paso and Dayton, both angry and sad about the state of the country. But it's inspiring to see at least how the people of El Paso a city which has a low crime rate and is 80% Hispanic right by the border with Mexico, how they held rallies after the Walmart shooting calling for love and, and not more fear and hatred.
2: Yeah, you know, at times of crisis like this, it is easy to think that things are always getting worse, that we're in some kind of downward spiral. And I think one role that we play on this show is to try to step back and look at the bigger picture. It's admittedly hard at a moment of tragedy.
0: Our show is about fixes.
1: Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do we we fix fix it? How do we fix it?
0: Most of the deadliest shootings in America have happened in the past 10 years, and the nation was shaken this week by the deaths of more than 30 people in two attacks in El Paso, Texas, and Dayton, Ohio, that came within hours of each other. Extremism and white nationalist terrorism are clearly growing threats. Some are calling the current crisis, a new 9-11.
2: But as you always hear from me, Richard, it's a complicated issue. We're a show about solutions, and... And this one, I'm actually a little bit pessimistic that we can completely eliminate this threat.
0: So I call myself the optimist here, Jim. And there are some signs of movement in many states, and by law enforcement as well. We'll get into those. America does have the worst homicide rate among all industrialized countries. Uh, Mass shootings also undermine our confidence in public order and safety. So they are clearly a big problem and cause a lot of suffering.
2: So the first thing people usually focus on after these incidents is the weapon, the gun. So last year, right after the shootings at a high school in Parkland, Florida, we talked to James Burnett, the editorial director of The Trace. It's an independent news site that covers America's gun violence crisis. And he had some interesting observations about this.
3: The... Outs of public attention, such as the one we are experiencing right now, are largely sparked by mass shootings and other very high-profile incidents of gun violence. But if we look at it statistically, mass shootings account for something like 1% or 2% of all gun-related fatalities. Um, the much larger share are what you might categorize as routine, if there is such a thing, homicides. That's about a third of total gun fatalities. And then about two-thirds are, are suicides. Um, and then we have another segment that are unintentional shootings, often involving a child who accesses a gun and, and uses it to kill or injure themselves or others. And so that's the big picture, is is that mass shootings are, yes, a problem, but they are part of a much larger issue. You have a number
2: of policies that you've looked into, and one of them deals with The availability of firearms, particularly on the black market, what can you tell us about illegally obtained firearms?
3: So when we're talking about um, gun violence, we are mostly talking about homicides and assaults conducted with handguns. Very many, almost all, legally purchased uh, at one point or another. Um, So you have a legal product that ends up being used illegally illegally. Something we've looked into the trace is theft, Uh, guns purchased for self-defense often, uh, carried in public spaces due to laws that facilitate that. Uh, I I,
0: I, I saw one report that said that illegally owned guns, these are illegally owned guns, many of them stolen, are used in more than 80% of the killings and injuries in America. Is that right?
3: Um, I will be honest that that's not a statistic I've dug into, but- it would square with how we know uh, guns move from uh, legal ownership to the black market and then get used. But
0: your your answer to that question is interesting because you said we don't really have the data on that. That's a problem, isn't it? A widespread problem with, with how to look at the impact of gun violence, that there are so many things about gun sales and gun ownership that we don't know. Why is that?
3: That's correct. So— what you're getting at is um, a dearth of research that is often attributed to a congressional writer that's been on the books for decades now, the Dickey Amendment. The CDC, Centers for Disease Control, did a study, and it had some findings that were suggestive of risks associated with gun ownership. There was concern that on the part of um, pro-gun lawmakers that the, the federal government was engaged in anti-gun research. And so um, they put in this writer, they didn't say you can't do any studies of gun violence, but that if it seemed to advocate for gun restrictions or, or have a sort of anti-gun cast to it, that that wouldn't be okay. And they removed a portion of funding equal to what they had spent on the on the study. So the, the gist was, here's a tight parameter, here's a tight line, don't, don't step across it. And if you do you'll see your funding suffer.
2: It's so funny because I've always heard that the Dickey Amendment made it illegal for CDC to do research into gun violence. And and that's, as you're saying, that's not actually not true. So why hasn't the CDC gone back to doing maybe some investigations of these issues, not in an advocacy way, but just to get the basic numbers
0: out there?
3: Um, the calculation has seemed to be, Uh, We're not going to take any chances.
0: Talk about the power of the NRA and whether the NRA has distorted the debate over gun violence and, and what to do about it.
3: I think the thing that the NRA has been successful at, one is in tying gun ownership very tightly to one form of American identity, where we think about identity politics in other form, gun ownership has become one. And- anything that might restrict your ability to own the kinds of guns of your choosing and to take them into places where you feel you need them if you are a gun owner. The NRA has made that a deep identity issue for some gun owners. So I was careful not to paint with too broad a brush on this, but that's, that's a thing that has happened. And also just to send the message in contrary to what the data actually says that a gun is a key to safety and security. That
0: So what you're saying is the NRA is advocating that that having a gun increases your safety, whereas the facts are that, that that's not necessarily true.
3: Um, that's right. I think that it's a two-part thing. I think that it's having a gun and carrying a gun in public makes you more free, more truly independent. That's the That's the message of the NRA and more safe and that those around you will be more safe because you can intervene should something happen. And those are very powerful messages. That's why you see pushback on things like bans or regulations on assault-style rifles, um, on the capacity, the size, how many rounds the uh, ammunition magazine can hold, on where you can carry guns in, in a school, at a church. Those become real dividing lines. Interestingly, the polling on things like background checks, where the government says you have a record that makes you too high risk to own a gun, those pull through the roof, 97%. I mean, nothing is that popular in America. Uh, And that's including among gun owners.
0: James Burnett of The Trace, uh, speaking to that last point that he made, uh, the Republican governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine, is now changing his mind and calling for background checks on all gun purchases in the state, including online. Nearly 20 states have them. So that's one reason for hope and for optimism. It's not all just about Washington and Congress. Uh, There's action in the states. Speaking of Washington, though, the NRA may be weaker than it was, which to me is a good thing. There is some real infighting in the group. And a group called Moms Demand Action, as well as other gun control organizations, are more organized and a lot better funded than they were a few years ago.
2: Right. I, I do think that the atmosphere is shifting, and I think you know, you, you even hear from, from Trump some openness to some different areas where we might look at elements of the problem. For example, there's the background checks. There's red flag warnings or gun violence restraining orders. And I think there's pretty much consensus around the idea that these ultra-large magazines that allow somebody to continue firing for you know, long periods of time without reloading, should not be in civilian hands. But I think we need to be careful about looking at gun bans as some kind of, if you'll excuse the expression, a silver bullet. We did have an assault weapons ban that was passed under Bill Clinton that was in effect for a decade or so. And when that was studied, they really couldn't find that it had much impact on overall gun violence because as horrific as these incidents are, they constitute such a small number of total gun deaths that they don't really make a big impact. Doesn't mean we don't want to try to prevent them. It doesn't mean we don't want to do what we can, but we should also be careful about assuming that the solution is simple.
0: I'm going to make three points. One that just because something's complicated doesn't mean we should do nothing, and I, I don't totally think you're agree suggesting with suggesting that. that. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Secondly, that the recent research at UC Davis, University of California Davis appears to show that red flag warnings do have an impact on reducing the number of people who have access to guns who are mentally disturbed or who have come to the attention of law enforcement. So that's a positive step. And then also, I think another more profound point is the problem is us in that Since 2004, sales of semi-automatic handguns and uh, military-style assault rifles have really gone up, and not just specific types, but anything that can fire a lot of bullets in a short amount of time. There are many, many more of those weapons on the market being sold, being made now than was the case. And there are very high levels of demand for them. It's not just the evil gun manufacturers or one specific type of weapon. It's a consumer problem.
2: I understand the concern with the weapons that have very high rate of fire and, and that sort of thing. But at the same time, if you look at the period when so-called assault rifles, you know the definition is very very hard to pin down, what makes these things different from other sorts of common rifles. If you look at the period during which these weapons have become extremely popular, the AR-15 is the most popular weapon in America. During that period, the overall rates of gun homicides have dropped dramatically. So, if you were looking at pure, I'm not arguing this, but if you were looking at trying to make a correlation, you'd say having more of these weapons in public hands brings down gun violence. Now that's obviously silly, maybe, but um, well, I
0: think I think it's utterly silly, and I think what one of the arguments that that is often made by supporters of of gun rights is everybody had more guns and then uh, they'd be able to protect themselves. And you look at what happened at Walmart in El Paso in an open-carry state where a number of the shoppers in that Walmart where more than 20 people died last weekend were carrying guns. I mean, the the rapid-fire guns go off so incredibly quickly that a lot of people could be killed in a matter of seconds before there's any kind of response from law enforcement or otherwise. I'm
2: buying you, but that's not an argument what I just said, that we don't have evidence that more of these weapons in the hands of law-abiding civilians creates more gun violence. You know, we're going to talk about white supremacy in a second. I actually think we have uh, that white supremacy movement is part of a a bigger movement of, of kind of catastrophic ideological extremism that we see across the political spectrum and that is in itself really, really dangerous and frightening. And we need to figure out ways to address it, regardless of what the ideology is that it comes from. People forget this. In the 70s, we had literally thousands of politically motivated bombings from groups like uh, the Weather Underground and and other radical groups.
0: But but did they kill as many people in such a short period of time in one place? They
2: tended to be pretty inept bombers. But then you had Oklahoma City 180-some yes. people were killed, and that ideologically motivated uh, bombing. So you don't need a, uh, an assault weapon to kill a lot of people, sadly. Again, that's not an argument against regulation, but it is an argument for recognizing that the roots of the problem are bigger than in any individual weapon or device.
0: Just before moving on to to white supremacy, two points I think that that you would agree with. One is that what we're seeing is the power of technology— Often, to make things worse, both through social media and internet and also the technology of, of guns that, that cheap guns that can fire huge numbers of bullets in a short period of time are a problem, and then also the other thing that the need for more effective um, regulation not just not just laws but laws that are properly enforced, like for instance, if we 're going to have more effective background checks, then let 's make sure that, that they actually work. Okay, so let's go on to domestic terrorism.
2: So speaking of the white supremacy issue, FBI Director Christopher Wray discussed this in testimony before Congress just a few weeks ago. He called white supremacy a persistent and pervasive threat to the United States. I'm going to play a little clip from that.
0: In terms of number of arrests, we have through the third quarter of this fiscal year had about give or take 100 arrests in the international terrorism side, which includes the homegrown violent extremism. This year. This year. But we've also had just about the same number. Again, don't quote me to the exact digit on the domestic terrorism side. And I will say that a majority of the domestic terrorism cases that we've investigated are motivated by some version of what you might call white supremacist violence.
2: That was FBI Director Christopher Wray speaking to Congress, and in the and in the past few days, the FBI has opened an investigation into what role ideology played in the weekend's shooting in Ohio and a week earlier in Gilroy, California. You know, there was a time when the when the the country united against the Ku Klux Klan, and we called people out who were uh, who were members. We shamed them in in communities. We really did a pretty good job of driving this organization uh, from, you know, to a large extent from the, the public square. We could do the same thing with um, some of these ideologies that, that when they step over that line into becoming, um, you know, advocacy for violence.
0: Here's another reason why I'm a bit more of an optimist on this uh, issue Right now, than I was earlier this week. And that is clear signs that the FBI is ramping up its investigation, as you mentioned. And law enforcement was highly effective in going after Islamist extremists after 9 11. And in the days right after those terrible attacks in 2001, there was a feeling of hopelessness that, mm-hmm. that there would just be more. And it didn't happen to anything like the degree that was feared. And I think that probably, maybe we won't won't know this for years, a large number of planned attacks were foiled. So we can do things about this.
2: I agree with you. But remember also that a lot of that work was quite controversial. And I tend to think the FBI did a pretty good job there of respecting people's rights. But we can never completely trust our own law enforcement to make every... Call correctly, And I could see how there might have been excesses in some investigations of mosques and whatnot. And there might be excesses in investigations of legitimate groups that lean right, but that are, are labeled as violent or white supremacists by, by other groups. The real threat is ideological violence, not necessarily a particular type. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a, a, an example of this. James Hodgkinson, does that name ring a bell? No, no, he doesn't get a whole lot of coverage, but he's the guy that tried to wipe out Republican leadership of the House of Representatives on that baseball field and almost killed Steve Scalise. That was purely ideologically motivated violence, just as dangerous. Is it as common? Is it not as common? It's a it's a bad game to every time one of these incidents happens, say, well, this one is your party's fault or that one is is that, you know, or no, that one's your party's fault.
0: It's how do we fix it. I'm Richard Davies.
2: And I'm Jim Meggs.
1: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door.
0: I've got to say, President Trump's repeated public statements about an Hispanic invasion, his claims that Mexican migrants are murderers and rapists, his talk about rats in inner cities, his verbal attacks on four Democratic congresswomen, and, and earlier his birther claims about President Obama are all examples of comments aimed at people of color. They're hurtful, and they set a terrible example from the man who is not only our head of government, but our head of state.
2: We talked to Bob Spitz, author of a relatively new uh, biography, Reagan and American Journey, about what are some of the most important lessons to be learned from Reagan's style of leadership. And Spitz has an interesting perspective. He's no conservative or Republican by a long shot. So he kind of had an eye for some of the things that Reagan did that probably a lot of conservatives would maybe not even be as thrilled about. But he sees them as examples of, of a willingness to, to represent all the people.
0: What are a few lessons of Reagan's style for politicians of today?
4: Um, I think the most important one is to realize that you're the president of all the people, not just some of the people. Uh, Ronald Reagan learned this very early in his term as governor, in his first term. He was one of the first people in the country to pass a therapeutic abortion bill. This was six years before Roe v. Wade. He was personally opposed to abortion. But One of his legislators, and and the legislature was all Democratic, came to him and said, you don't understand. The people in California want this. 65% of the people want you to sign this. Reagan did a few studies, found out that indeed that was true, and he decided to sign the bill above his objections because he said, I'm the governor of all the people, not just some of the people. And I think that's the most important thing
0: you can take away from, uh, from him. One criticism that was very common at the time, especially in in the mainstream media, was that Reagan wasn't very smart. He wasn't very sophisticated. Mm -hmm. And that was a huge misconception.
4: Yeah, I think it was. You know, when I said he was never the smartest man in the room, that doesn't mean he wasn't smart. He was very canny. He was a shrewd man. um, And he had great gut instincts. He really knew how to trust himself. And that is really the mark of a good leader. Um, But a good leader always knows that good people make you an even better leader. And that was Reagan's saving grace.
2: If the 70s was the decade of malaise uh, Mm -hmm. and the, the 80s were the decade of optimism and revival, how much credit does Reagan get for that?
4: Oh, I think he gets enormous credit. And especially... In these post partisan times, when uh, you have a look at somebody and you see that he wasn't as far right as we thought he was, that he wasn't as reckless as we were afraid he was going to be,
0: Uh, I I think you have to give him credit for all of that. But he did turn the Republican Party right. Oh, he did. Uh, And the Republican Party became much more ideologically driven as a result of his presidency than before.
4: Yes, both abortion and religion became issues and they had never been issues before Ronald Reagan's uh, administration. He brought those issues into the national discourse.
2: Reagan was often underestimated, often reviled as a scary extremist figure. So it's tempting to maybe think, well, what if that's also true of Trump? Maybe he's Not as extreme as people think, or maybe he's got capacity for compromise that we just haven't seen yet. Hmm. What do you think?
4: Uh, You know, I can only answer it this way, and that is that Ronald Reagan didn't have a hostile bone in his body. And I I, I think uh, Donald Trump is not wired that way. You you really need to have that deep inside of you. Trump, I think, is too much of a narcissist to, uh, to change. Reagan was not a narcissist in any shape or form.
2: Author Bob Spitz. You can hear more on episode 174 of How Do We Fix
0: It? I'm somewhat more emotional than you are at times, Jim, and I have to say I started the week after the shootings in El Paso and Dayton both angry and sad about the state of the country, but it's inspiring to see at least how the people of El Paso a city which has a low crime rate and is 80% Hispanic right by the border with Mexico, how they held rallies after the Walmart shooting calling for love and, and not more fear and hatred.
2: Yeah, you know, at times of crisis like this, it is easy to think that things are always getting worse, that we're in some kind of downward spiral. And I think one role that we play on this show is to try to step back and look at the bigger picture. It's admittedly hard at a moment of tragedy.
0: Yeah, I got some gentle pushback on Twitter this week from a past How Do We Fix It guest Greg Easterbrook. Uh, I quoted El Paso Congresswoman Veronica Escobar who said that this is right now one of the lowest points in American history and that if we don't recognize it, we will not have a turning point that we need. And Greg pointed out in his tweet back to me that this is what Trump had said in the weeks before the 2016 election and that pretending everything is awful when most things for most people have never been better keeps Americans in an endless state of depression and anxiety preventing reforms such as gun regulation.
2: So let's hear from Greg again. He's the author of the book, It's Better Than It Looks, Reasons for Optimism in a State of Fear. Always a challenging argument to make. People are really invested in their conviction that everything is horrible. You know, And he received a lot of pushback for that book. But he spoke to us in episode 148, and I asked him why he calls himself a, quote, cynical optimist.
5: I don't think that you have to have a sunny or rose-colored view of the world in order to be an optimist. You can be a cynical optimist. You can be very cynical about the world. An optimist can get angry when things are bad. The Parkland, Florida shooting, if that didn't make you furiously angry, I don't know what would. If you're an optimist, you think those problems can be fixed. If you're a pessimist, you think the world's going to hell and there's nothing I can do about it. Why is being an optimist more empowering than being a pessimist politicians constantly emphasize the most negative possible view of the world and and donald trump was really good at that so was bernie sanders because they want to sell you the belief that the people who are in charge now are screwing everything up and the last hope for planet earth is to put the people who are campaigning for office in charge in fact trump himself constantly said i'm the only one the only one in the entire world who can save the country. So you had to sell a negative point of view to get that across. On the flip side, if you're an optimist, some politicians, some editorial writers, thinks, oh, you're a Pollyanna. You say there are no problems. Optimists do not say there are no problems. What optimists say is, These are the problems that I see that can be fixed. Greg Easterbrook with a powerful lesson for us all. And that's our show. How Do
0: We Fix It? Is very well produced each week by Miranda Schaefer.
2: And Richard... um... Davies Content publishes our show, but you guys also work with a number of other organizations to produce some really cool podcasts. Maybe this would be a good time to talk about that a little bit.
0: Yeah, toot my horn. We also work with our friends at the, the New York Cable News Channel, New York One, on a show called Crosstown with Pat Kiernan. It's a really interesting look at how they report the news in the city on a whole bunch of issues. We're also proud to be involved with IOM, the UN Migration Agency, on a podcast called A Way Home Together, Stories of the Human Journey about migrants and refugees' personal stories. And we're consulting with author A.J. Jacobs and CVS Health on their new podcast. So find out more at DaviesContent.com. And as always, thanks for listening.